World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okunbii. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, we're taking you on a ride, specifically a train ride through the continent of Europe. Sit back, get comfortable, close your eyes and be transported. First up, though. Let me tell you, it's been quite the year for news. Should we run through some of the main moments of 2023? There was that one-day armed uprising in Russia. It's a stunning turn of events as Vladimir Putin accuses the head of the Wagner military group, Evgeny Prigozhin, of an armed mutiny. Mr. Putin's war continued in Ukraine. A new one started in Sudan. And in October, Israel suffered its bloodiest ever day. And a brutal retaliation has followed. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared a state of war with Hamas. That declaration comes after Hamas launched a major surprise rocket attack earlier today. According to the Israeli Defense Force... Climate records continue to fall, but at COP28, the world agreed to move away from the coal, oil and natural gas that are the principal causes of global warming. This is the first time there's been a clear reference to the future of all fossil fuels in a UN climate summit text. But this deal doesn't include any wording on the phase-out of fossil fuels, something many governments wanted. The world's largest democracy, India, became the world's most populous country. And in another major democracy, a former and possibly future president faced multiple indictments. The Fulton County Grand Jury has voted to indict Donald Trump for his alleged efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss to then-president-elect Joe Biden. And populism proved that it has not yet gone out of style. Argentina's fiercely polarized presidential election is over. And populist Javier Malay came out ahead. In light of all this, staff at The Economist have been debating Where in the world is deserving of The Economist's much-coveted Country of the Year award? When you think about the year we've just had, it's been pretty grim in many respects. You've had wars, not just in Ukraine and the Middle East, but in several other places around the world. Patrick Fowles is The Economist's foreign editor. I think there's still a sense big autocratic powers China and Russia are on the front foot and showing some swagger. And then around the world, you've had this longer-term trend of democracy struggling from populism. It's a grim backdrop, actually, for selecting this annual award that we do. What are the criteria for this annual award of ours? 
Well, there are many ways you could think about whether countries are doing well, but we've focused on a particular thing, which is the country that has improved the most during the year. And that's typically because the government of that country has pursued policies that we think are in the country's long-run interests. And of course, that's something that one would hope governments everywhere ultimately pursue. And in the past, we've picked a variety of places. You know, Uzbekistan at one point has been on our winners list for some signs of social and political reform there. Ukraine has won thanks to its heroic defense against Russia's attacks. So it tends to be places where the country has done something impressive, its government is doing the right things, and we can point to improvement over the last year. Okay, so bringing listeners behind the veil a little bit, because this is, of course, such a prestigious award that we actually elicit nominations from across the editorial department. And I can attest that this year it was um, quite the debate. What can you tell us about how those discussions went? Well, it's a bit of a tradition at The Economist, Ore, as you know, that we have pretty fulsome editorial debates behind the scene on a vast range of subjects. But I think this particular exercise tends to attract the full spectrum of opinion, and it's become a bit of a tradition. So we had what may be the world's longest email chain with people suggesting a vast array of countries disagreeing, huge debate. And there was a strong body of opinion that we should pay tribute to the people who'd suffered this year. And there are obviously a horrifyingly large number of groups of people who might qualify from the Palestinians to the Israelis and also, you know, around the world, many conflicts that are less well followed. And if you look at what's been happening in Sudan this year, it's truly horrific. In the end, we decided to stick with our original intent for this award. But we then faced the tricky question of, in this rather bleak global outlook, had anyone actually done anything particularly good or impressive? And at one point, I think the most bleak suggestion was that we should nominate a fictional country. I'm Josie Delap. I'm The Economist's Middle East editor. This year has been, as many recent years have been, a very dark one, news-wise. I've been particularly aware of that in running our coverage of the Middle East. And so when we were thinking about which country to name our country of the year, to be honest, it was tempting to retreat into fantasy, at least briefly, and to advocate for Barbieland. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Do you guys ever think about dying? I think there are some genuine arguments for it. Barbie Land recognised and fixed many of the problems raised by the patriarchy in the real world, but then went on to make improvements when it recognised the flaws in the system that it had created. But in the end, when we thought about it a bit harder, collectively we were able to come up with some real-life examples of countries that did well in the last year. And they basically fell into three groups. Tell me about these three groups. The first is countries that have stood up to bullying by outside autocratic powers, China, Russia, and other examples. The second category was countries that had stood up for liberal values against threats at home. And then the last category was countries that have pulled off what is, in some ways, one of the hardest things to do, but one of the most important, which is having had experience of populism 
and extreme politics somehow managed to pull things back towards the centre and ending up somewhere a bit more sane. Okay, Patrick, let's begin with the protagonists that have stood up to the foreign bullies. Well, you can organise that by who the bullies are. And the two big ones are Russia and China. We've had many countries, I think, come to a realisation that Russia poses an enormous threat. And obviously, directly, that's to Ukraine, which has continued its struggle against Vladimir Putin's war machine. But there's a wider group of countries, particularly in Europe, that have got on the front foot. Moldova, which has resisted a Russian subversion campaign. You saw Finland join NATO and Sweden signal its intent to join NATO. If you look at the other main global bully, it's China. And there, again, you've seen a bit of an awakening on the defence and security front with a growing number of countries trying to stick up for themselves more. You've seen the Philippines show much more intent to try and defend its maritime boundary and the law of the sea against Chinese incursions. You saw Japan and South Korea, which have this very difficult history of colonialism and from the Second World War, but put some of those historical differences behind them and sign a new defense and cooperation agreement. So most people will have heard of those countries in Asia that stood up to China. But of course, there's some other places which are far smaller and less well known that deserve applause too. Such as? Well, one of the countries from our mega email chain that came up was Tuvalu, which is a tiny island state in the South Pacific that faces two threats. One is climate change, which could eventually see the country disappear. And the other is the struggle for dominance in the Pacific. Tuvalu had one particularly passionate advocate, which is our Europe correspondent, Matt Steinglass. Tuvalu is a small, low-lying oceanic country, and it is gradually disappearing because of rising sea levels. Very impressively this year, its leader negotiated a deal with Australia that will allow its population to gradually migrate to Australia as the country disappears. And that is an extraordinary gesture of acceptance of reality, acceptance of science, facing the future, long-term planning, It's a bit depressing, but it sends a very strong message to the world about what climate change is doing to this planet. Okay, so that's one group down. Now, the second grouping you mentioned was the defenders of liberalism at home. Who was in the running there? Well, lots of countries had elections, and some of them were fragile states where the track record of democracy is either mixed or where liberal values and institutions have not become super well entrenched. And you saw impressive, peaceful transitions of power in many of those countries, including Liberia and Kenya. You also had an election in another place that might not be so well known, Timor-Leste. And the honorary Timor-Leste representative on our staff is Mike Bird, who's our Asia business and finance editor. The Timorese parliamentary election in May was free and fair without any violence. It resulted in a peaceful transfer of power between two governing coalitions led by different parties. And basically two decades after independence, Timor remains one of the few democracies in Southeast Asia, the only one with a really entirely free press. And basically Timor's continued commitment to forgiveness and conciliation with Indonesia at the same time is pretty remarkable. It seems like something that other countries in Asia and a lot further field could learn from uh, when it comes to grudges held over much older conflicts. In a couple of places, 
voters and opposition parties pushed hard against autocratic rulers, but ultimately served as a reminder that it's really difficult to reverse the slide away from democracy. So both Thailand and Turkey had fiercely contested elections and elections which weren't run entirely fairly, where the incumbent or autocratic powers managed to retain control. Okay, so we've got some good contenders here so far, but not quite our winner, it seems. Maybe in the third group, the countries that have returned to centrist politics? That's exactly right. So the short list, if you like, that we came up with were countries that really did manage to turn the tide on populist or autocratic politics. And before we get to the winner, there are two honourable mentions. The first is Brazil. In Brazil, on January the 1st, 2023, Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva was inaugurated as Brazil's president. And he had booted out his predecessor, the demagogic Jair Bolsonaro, whose supporters had basically attempted an insurrection following the immediate election result. I'm Robert Guest. I'm a deputy editor of The Economist. I think Brazil should be country of the year. On two of the issues we care about the most, so anti-democratic populism and the environment, Brazil has improved immeasurably in the past year. It's got rid of a president who built a sort of mendacious, populist, hate-driven administration and replaced it with a relatively normal one. And the new president has cut deforestation in the Amazon by 50%. So these are both huge improvements on the ground. While Lula has defended democracy at home and done the right thing on climate, largely too, there's a big flaw, which is he has indulged the enemies of democracy abroad. So Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, but also Vladimir Putin in Russia. And for those reasons, Brazil didn't win our award. So that leads to the second runner-up, which is Poland. And in some ways, Poland had a really remarkable year. Its economy has withstood the shock of the Ukraine war. And in the face of Russia's threats, it's actually done something rather remarkable on the security front too, which has raised defense spending dramatically to well over an annual rate of 3% of GDP. The big weakness of Poland over the last eight years has been that it's been run by the Law and Justice Party, and that's a populist right-wing outfit. And what happened in Poland in October is that voters finally ejected Law and Justice from office. The caveat on Poland is that the new coalition government, which is going to be led by a liberal called Donald Tusk, is still in very early days. It's a very complex, fiddly coalition with loads of parties. So things are heading in the right direction in Poland, but we felt it was a bit too early to award it the prize. Okay, well, it's the moment that we've all been waiting for. It's time to announce the winner. Can I have a drum roll, please? Well, the winner of the Economist Country of the Year Award in 2023 is Greece. Now, 10 years ago, Greece was crippled by a debt crisis. It had become a financial pariah, and that economic collapse had shredded the social contract in Greece, and that bred extremist parties on the left and the right that played an increasingly dominant role 
And partly because of its fraught circumstances, there were signs Greece was actually beginning to cozy up to autocracies despite being a NATO and EU member. Cast yourself forward to today, and Greece is not perfect. So this year, there was a bad train crash, which many people felt exposed corruption and rotten infrastructure in the country. There was a wiretapping political scandal and mistreatment of migrants that showed civil liberties in Greece still need to be protected better and improved. But after many painful years of restructuring, Greece's economy is on the mend, and it actually came top of our annual rankings for economic performance for the year. Meanwhile, you've had a centrist government that was re-elected in May. It's focused on economic reforms, on rebuilding that social contract, and also on pursuing a foreign policy, which is one that we would agree with, and we hope all liberals would. It's pro-American, it's pro-the European Union, and it's wary of Russia in particular. Now for the postscript of sorts, how difficult a choice was this? I think it's always difficult. And in fact, part of the editorial process I was telling you about, as well as that massive email chain, we've also had several hours of in-depth discussion. And in the real world, rather than even Barbie land, every country has enormous flaws. But I think if you take a step back, what we try to focus on was this higher level thing that's happening in the world, which is the struggle for centrist politics against more populist or even autocratic forces, Greece showed what was possible, that it's a country that was in a truly terrible and frankly humiliating situation a decade ago, and somehow it's managed to achieve what might seem impossible. Now, if you look at next year, we don't know who the winner of our prize will be, but we do know roughly half of the world's population is due to vote in elections. And we think Democrats and liberals everywhere should pay notice to the winner of our award, Greece. Personally, I'm still team Barbie land, but um, you've, you've made a great case. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, sorry. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Take a map of Europe, locate Paris, and from there draw a line headed east. Taking nothing but trains, how far can you get in a full 24 hours? Stanley Pignol writes Charlemagne, our column on European affairs. This isn't a question many people ask themselves these days. Cheap flights will get you anywhere you want to get to in Europe in just a couple of hours. But I write a weekly column that aims to weave the continent into a coherent whole. To understand Europe, you can't stay cooped up in the EU institutional bubble in Brussels. You need to go places, sometimes with no real idea of what might come up. That's what I told my editor anyway. But we both knew why I was really going. I like trains. There's something about watching landscapes go by and people going places. 
Trains literally carry you away to another place as the world transforms in front of your eyes. The answer to the 24-hour question, by the way, is that in a full day and night, you can get across around 1,500 kilometers of distance from Paris as the crow flies. If you want to avoid landing in Ukraine, that means traveling to Romania, specifically to Cluj-Napoca, the biggest city in Transylvania. As it happens, I knew Cluj already. 25 summers ago, before my last year of high school, I'd bought a cheap interrail pass, an all-you-can-travel ticket that allows you to crisscross Europe. And somehow Cluj had ended up on the itinerary. In 1998, the place had a distinct post-communist vibe, like a frontier town. This was Europe, but not the same Europe as France or Italy. You could feel the backwardness. Two years before the 21st century, I remember having to send a telegram to keep my parents informed of my progress. 25 years ago, getting from A to B to C to D in Europe involved the Thomas Cook Rail Timetable, a thick red almanac detailing the daily ballet of trains from Porto to Helsinki. Now Google Maps will give you a pretty good itinerary. In this case, start with a TGV fast train from Paris to Frankfurt, then a six-hour journey through Germany and Austria to Vienna, arriving with plenty of time to catch a slow-rolling 12-hour night train pulling into Cluj the following morning. I caught my first train at 7.20 a.m. from the Gare de l'Est in Paris, and the trip started off at lightning speed. It took less than two hours to cover the 395 kilometers to Strasbourg on the border with Germany. This is something I've noticed. In Europe, as a general rule, the further east you go, the slower the trains. France is faster than Germany, which is faster than Austria, and so on, all the way to the Black Sea. I relaxed in my seat as we whizzed through the Champagne region. Once upon a time, crossing borders slowed everything down as customs officers boarded trains. But nowadays, you can barely tell where one country ends and the other begins. The names of the villages you whiz past can give things away, from Pont-à-Mousson to Appenweier. But mostly what you notice is a collective buzzing of mobile phones throughout the train as carriers send text messages welcoming their customers to Germany. Here's a travel tip. Given the choice, avoid eating on French trains. The food there is outsourced to the kind of companies that serve up forgettable airline meals. On German trains, things are different. Their restaurant cars feature plush red leather banquettes, where uniformed staff bring you proper grub on real china. The Linsen Eintopf, a tasty lentil and sausage stew, is actually really good. A local Bitburger beer, ordered in the name of research, came poured into its proper branded glass, not some plastic cup. Here's another travel tip. Despite the food, avoid German trains if you can. Last year, a third of Deutsche Bahn journeys ran late. Mainly, the fault lies in the poor maintenance of rail lines, which the penny-pinching government refuses to spend money on. The poor quality of the track system comes to life when dodgy signaling forces the driver to periodically slam on the brakes. This wreaks havoc in the restaurant car. Please hold on to your plates! The waiter screams. Please hold on to your glasses! 
I've noticed a weird thing about long-distance travel. Flights generally make up for lost time. Trains are the opposite. If you start off late, you end up very late. I had plenty of time to ponder this while I rode through Germany. Leaving Frankfurt, we were just 20 minutes delayed. At every stop, we seemed to be another few minutes off. My heart sank as I realized the one-hour buffer I'd built in to change trains in Vienna wouldn't be enough, and I'd be stuck there in a foreign city with no hotel late at night. The landscape helped take my mind off Deutsche Bahn's inept timekeeping. At the right side window riding towards Munich, you can just about make out the Alps further south. On the left side, for 600 kilometers, you can admire the sparkling waters of the Danube, the longest river in Europe. I got to Vienna just as my train to Cluj was meant to have pulled out the station. I ran desperately across Vienna's Hauptbahnhof, now the hub of night trains in Europe. But in an unexpected piece of good news, mine was running 20 minutes late. I traveled by night train a lot in my youth, including on that trip 25 years ago, but it had been some years since I'd taken one. The thing I recalled most clearly was my fellow traveler's considerable snoring abilities. So this time, I booked a compartment all to myself, $100 of my employer's money well spent. One thing I remembered about night trains was true. As the train shudders and thumps, it lulls you to sleep. You won't get a better night's rest anywhere else. With one regrettable interruption, because Romania has yet to be led into the Schengen zone, passport. a cheerless Hungarian border guard comes to check your passport in the dead of night. 20 minutes later, as you doze off, his equally cheerless Romanian counterpart knocks on the door to carry out his own checks. <sighs> I woke up in Transylvania refreshed, but the ambling train had little in common with the TGV that had left Paris 23 hours earlier. Nor did the place I was traveling through. Forget the giant tractors of the Champagne region in France. In rural Romania, I could see horses hauling around bales of hay. At 8.19 a.m., incredibly an exact 23 hours and 59 minutes after setting off, I arrived in Cluj. 25 years later, the place looked much slicker now. The city is an IT hub, and the hipster coffee joint I soon found would have been familiar to a resident of LA, London, or Hong Kong. But I didn't stick around long. I headed to the airport only a few hours after arriving. Attention, please. The, last the journey headed west on a couple of planes was much faster than the trains I'd just taken. But here's the thing. It was also completely forgettable. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, Perhaps now is a good time to catch up on the episodes of our feature shows that you've missed. You know, Drum Tower, our podcast on China, or maybe you'd like to sit down with a longer episode of The Weekend Intelligence. Whatever you choose, enjoy. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. 
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.